Hi, welcome to Colonial Williamsburg, past and present on history.org. This is Behind the Scenes. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. My guest today is Ann Conkling, who's a church guide at Bruton Parish Church. Ann, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. This is the time of year when we start to think about graveyards and uh, churchyards and things like that, and you actually can tell us a good bit about what is one of America's oldest churchyards, which is in Bruton Parish Church. The church is one of the oldest buildings in continuous use, and it is an active congregation today with uh, close to 600 families who belong there. The building itself is 1715, but the churchyard goes all the way back to the 1630s. And now burials were not happening only in the churchyard, right? No, the norm is to be buried on land you owned. So Mr. Washington is at Mount Vernon, Mr. Henry is at Red Hill, Mr. Jefferson is at Monticello. The most important people in your life were buried in the floor of the church. And in England, of course, that was royalty, nobility, and clergy. Here in the colonies, we seem to think doctors, lawyers, judges, priests, and politicians are the very best sort. So that's the quality of who gets buried inside the church. Outside the church are a lot of people who clearly had no place else to be buried. They didn't own big farms. They were townsfolk. Now, they could have been buried back at the end of their lot, back near the necessaries, back by the fruit trees. They could have been buried wherever they died because they didn't know how to keep a body. They weren't embalming yet. So they would get the body washed and dressed and into the ground pretty quickly. You mentioned that notable people were buried in the church floor. How does that work? Well, the vestry would have known who were the most notable of the town. And they would have probably decided that when someone like um, Henry Hacker or Mrs. Prentice or Governor Fauquier, Governor Fauquier is probably one of our best examples. He died while he was in residence at the governor's palace. They didn't ship him back to England to bury him at home. They buried him here. And so they buried him in the north aisle of the church right beside the governor's pew from which he had often presided. He is uh, marked with a very nice stone, probably marked a little bit later. Most of the marking was done much later. But you simply dig up the floor and bury them in the church. Was it like stone floor or wooden floor? In the early years, it would have been a dirt floor, and then they would have put pieces of flagstone like a garden path. Remember, we're in the tidewater where all of our land is sand or red clay. We don't have hard stone. You've got to go all the way to the Charlottesville area before there's hard stone. Because they couldn't trade intercolonially, all the stone comes from England. So the stone for gravestones, the stone for the floor, the stone for steps, all of that comes across as ballast. So the gravestones that are in the yard came as ballast. Very few gravestones were in the floor of the church. Moving to the outdoors, to the Bruton Parish churchyard itself, it has a unique look, and I think that that's born of the headstones and burial practices of the era in which it was created. Can mm -hmm. you talk about what that churchyard looks like? It really depends on what year you look at it. If you're looking at it when Williamsburg becomes the capital city in 1699, it probably was pretty sparse. By the time that church is built in 1715, it probably has a few markers. Now, they may have been wooden crosses all lined up. That yard has not been done archaeologically, but you can kind of imagine in your mind's eye that they would have had crosses for the poor and the very wealthy could have imported a great gravestone. You know, many of the gentlemen of the time ordered everything from England. Many of them ordered stones which were shipped across, nothing left to be cut with the date. That way they control what's said about them on the stone. It's like writing your own obituary. 
but it also means if you think you're wealthy enough and important enough to afford a great table tomb <clears throat> rather than a flat ledger stone, you're going to order the biggest table tomb you can afford. So if you're looking at the graveyard by Mr. Jefferson's time at the college, and I believe he arrived in 1760, there would have been some stones. If you're looking at the yard during the Battle of Williamsburg in May of 1862, the church, like many other big buildings, was a uh, hospital after the Battle of Williamsburg. And the descriptions of our churchyard at that point point to people waiting to be tended to, piles of amputated limbs, the blood coming from the table tombs, which could have been operating tables. It was a very grotesque and very pitiful part of what comes along with any war. If you fast forward to 1907, um, city council decides that at that point, um, animals can't roam free in Williamsburg anymore. You know, for hundreds of years, animals went wherever they pleased. And I'm sure you've heard the quote that Duke of Gloucester Street was seven-eighths of a mile long, 99 feet wide, and three feet deep. It was very difficult to travel on Duke of Gloucester Street. So the church yard has an excellent, beautiful brick wall. Part of the reason is to keep the animals out of the churchyard. Not everybody was satisfied with the brick wall doing its job, so a lot of families put up in the 1800s and 1900s what looked like chicken wire stretched from posts around the plots of their family. So the churchyard was full of these funny little things to keep people off their graves. Well, in 1907, when city council said animals can't run free anymore, um, all those little fences could go. And so the churchyard by 1907 is getting more organized and getting cleaned up. Our guests love to read the gravestones. Some of them are hard to read between the use of the Old English, the long S, and the acid rain that we've all suffered from. Many of the gravestones are very hard to read. Tell me more about those gravestones. You've mentioned two things, uh, table tombs, mm -hmm. which I'd like to hear about, and also um, some of the markings that we see on gravestones in Bruton Parish that, that are not common now. A table tomb looks like a big stone box, and if you were to lift up the top, which sometimes happens, uh, it looks like a big stone bathtub. Now, the body's down in the ground. Most graves at Bruton are four and a half feet underground. Some of them are six. Most of them are not. The bodies are in the ground. The table tombs are on top. We have in that yard the finest collection of table tombs in British North America. And it speaks of our everlasting um, ties to England. We are always tied to England. The table tombs speak to the luxury, to the status, to the majesty of these enormous families who had so much land and so much money. Um, some of the markings that are fascinating, uh, there's one large tomb for Robert Ray, who was a tobacco factor uh, visiting from Scotland. He was here buying tobacco, and he died while he was here. And his family, of course, was distraught, so they sent that lovely stone to mark his grave so that people would always remember him. On one end is a skull and crossbones. Doesn't mean he was a pirate. Doesn't mean he died of poison. It means everybody has to die. On the other end is a little angel, which is the promise of resurrection. And on the top is a family coat of arms because the Ray family was well connected. So if you couldn't read a word, which many people couldn't, you could look in that, at that stone in the churchyard 
and get a great sense of comfort and also a little bit of Christian education. Further down towards the west end of the church is a big table tomb for uh, Governor Knott. And Governor Knott's tomb on the side has the stage of life. It's a beautiful set of drapes. Little cherubs hold up the curtain at each side, and in the center is the skull in the center of the stage, which says the same thing. Death is in the center, but the promise of resurrection is always there. And, of course, all the Confederate ones just say CSA, May 5th, 1862, because we don't know their names. We have a few places where we know their name, rank, regiment, and state, but most of them just say CSA. And there are coats of arms on many of them. Now, on the Millington Stone, uh, John Millington was an incredible professor, teacher, educator. He was almost like a walking university on his own. His is draped with uh, an academic robe and some other signs of education. That's a very unusual stone. That's over by the wall by the Withhouse. Now, you mentioned the, some of the bodies in Bruton are four and a half feet deep, some are six. Has everyone buried there even had a coffin? No. Many folks were laid uh, in the ground. It depends on what you could afford. It depends on how well-born you were. It depends on how much family you leave behind, how much money they have. And if you are very, very, very important, you're going to have a better luck than if you're not. Many folks were uh, laid out with arms crossed, wrapped in a winding shroud, pinned all the way up with pins, and just laid in the ground. The cabinet maker automatically made coffins or caskets. And some people had simple oak, some people had pine, some people had walnut. Somebody like Governor Fauquier or Lord Botetot is going to have a couple of coffins, sometimes a nest of three coffins, and then the outer one's sealed. And if you're too poor to afford a coffin, how does that work? There were some coffins which could be recycled, reused. So you could be carried to the spot in a coffin and then laid in the ground, and then it could be recycled. You'd have to be very poor to rate that kind of care. Do you find that the bodies are oriented in any particular direction? Well, the tradition is if you're buried with your feet headed to the west and your head to the east, you are clergy. And you are buried so that you will, at the moment of resurrection, you will face your people. If you're buried with your feet to the east and your head to the west, your lay person or just a normal person, you will rise to meet Jesus so that you will rise to meet each other. In the church building, it's pretty clear who's buried which way. In the yard they appear to be not quite so organized. We can see that some of them are definitely east-west oriented, but some of them are kind of at an angle. That has partly to do with, I think, the 1683 church, looking at the plat that Michelle drew, wrote, drew of it in 17.2 or 3. It seems to be kind of at an angle to the current churchyard. So I think some of the graves are kind of at an angle, too. What does the Bruton Parish Churchyard tell us about the life of the people in this town? It tells us the visual piece of it is so wonderful. Um, in England, 
the very wealthy were buried with the very wealthy, the Midland were buried with the Midland, the poor were buried in the stews if they were buried at all, and everybody who had land was buried at the country churchyard closest to their land. In our churchyard, everybody's buried together. It's a very democratic graveyard. John Blair, who signed the Constitution, is buried just a few feet from the greenhouse who owned the store, which is who are buried just a few feet from Martha Custis's babies, right across the way from Sir Thomas Ludwell, who was Secretary of State under Governor Barclay, who's right across from uh, the Tyler Sumple burials, which include Mammy Sarah. They were all people of faith. For each of them, the church was the center. They were buried, you know, where their hearts were. Thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, you're most welcome. That's Colonial Williamsburg, past and present this time. We like hearing from you. Send us a comment at history.org slash podcasts. Check back often. We'll post more for you to download and hear.